Good evening. Welcome to And Who Decided That? I'm Amanda Rice, and I'm going to be hosting this evening. This evening's show is going to um, look at a recent episode of a podcast called Unfucking the Republic. If you haven't had a chance to listen to this great podcast, please go to your podcast feed and search UNFTR, Unfucking the Republic. It's a very cohesive, progressive view of what's happening right now, how we got where we are in this country and how we can get to where we want to be, which is to a country that is unfucked. So I'm going to play a clip from the introduction of this episode of Unfucking the Republic. The episode's title is $5 Gasoline, The Real Culprit Revealed. Anyway, here we go. My guess is you've heard one or all of the following factors as the reason why prices at the pump are so fucking high. Biden's stimulus and recovery plan gave too much money to consumers, so we're spending like assholes. It's our fault. Everyone is traveling again and living their lives, so demand is out of control and outstripping supply. Again, our fault. Biden's war of words with the fossil fuel industry during his campaign magically made prices go up, so it's Biden's fault. The war in Ukraine, Putin's fault. The uneven global recovery from the pandemic has impacted refineries and capacity. China's fault? Biden has handcuffed U.S. oil and natural gas production by killing projects like the Keystone Pipeline. Biden's fault. Only one of these is true, and only partially so. So the goal here is to prep you so you can summarily dismantle each one of these talking points and squarely point the finger at who's to blame. So that is the episode of Unfucking the Republic. And one of the things I really like about this episode of Unfucking the Republic is because, is it, is that it explains what the heck is going on with gasoline pricing. Why it's so high at the pump and what's going on. So that we can maybe unfuck it and get a more reasonable gasoline price that's more in line with the cost to produce it and distribute it. All of that is to say it would be great to uh, recognize that even though fossil fuels are ubiquitous and are going to be very hard to extract ourselves away from, we are going to have to stop using all kinds of fossil fuels and transform our economy. But in the meantime, we need to unfuck gas prices as they are because they are causing massive amounts of inflation. In our peak oil episode, which we re-released in conjunction with this piece to provide some context, we walked through the history of oil as both a commodity and a currency and how the price of it no longer reflects true market forces. Here's a quick recap. In the olden days, crude oil was difficult and expensive to extract from the ground. And there was a consensus that proven reserves were finite and we would therefore run out at some point in the future. This was the theory of peak oil, referred to as the Hubbard Curve, named for the geologist who first did the math in the 1950s. All things being equal, with available information at the time, we would have hit peak oil sometime in the 1970s, and then the world's supply would begin to decline over a period of decades. Okay? Got it. Great. Then a few things happened. The oil companies got really, really good at finding oil and pulling it out of the ground. A true technological revolution. And then they found it in the ocean and the tar sands literally everywhere. Suddenly, supply wasn't an issue. So as the global economy grew, U.S. consumption went off the fucking rails, 
and petrostates from Venezuela to Saudi Arabia and Equatorial Guinea to Norway and the U.S. to Russia were awash in petrodollars. And speaking of dollars, the most effective way to track the price of oil, considering it was being pumped around the world, was to mark it in U.S. dollars. So here are the two most important takeaways from this era. Up to and including this period of time, the only two economic determinants of price were supply and demand and the strength of the dollar. And here's why. If oil is priced in dollars and the dollar is strong, it takes fewer dollars to buy a barrel of oil. Likewise, if the dollar is weak, it requires more of them to buy a barrel. Historically, there's an inverse relationship. So if supply is meeting demand, meaning oil companies are pumping, refining, distributing, and storing enough oil to meet consumption demand in the broader market, then the value of the dollar will be the driver of any real change to the price of oil. On the flip side, if demand begins to outpace supply, then the price of oil will increase because that's economics 101, and vice versa. If we have more oil than we need, the price will go down. Why and how this happens is extremely important, and it helps us rejoin the story in the early 1970s. So, at that time, two important things happened. The first was the OPEC members pulled crude off the market in solidarity with Egypt and Syria in 1973. The second was when a man named Leo Melamed created an investment product on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, or the Merck, to trade on the price of oil. What Melamed understood was that the only thing that mattered in trading was volatility. The OPEC maneuver created volatility previously unseen, which spelled opportunity for investors who could now gamble on whether the price of oil would go up or down. Something as important to the world economy as crude oil should have never been a casino bet, but here we are. So the one thing that changed from our fundamental understanding of how oil is priced on the market beyond supply and demand and the value of the dollar is that it became a speculative vehicle. Hold that thought. So, to sum up, in addition to supply and demand and the difficulty of getting it out of the ground, oil became a speculative commodity. There's a couple of things in this economy, in this country, that have become speculative commodities that probably shouldn't be that. One is gasoline. Another one is housing. So, getting back to the show. So what goes into the price of gasoline, the price that we pay at the pump as consumers? If we think about the journey from the ocean floor or desert sand to the pump, it kind of makes sense. Remember, we're not talking about natural gas or the products that are made from that. We're talking about crude oil specifically. Natural gas is a different animal, though it is very closely related. For our purposes, we're just talking about the desert sand to the gas pump. First, we're listening to a recent episode of the podcast Unfucking the Republic. And I'm going to get back to having Max explain the price of gas from the sand to the pump. I will be taking calls if you are interested in doing that. And I welcome everybody here. Again, um, the link for Unfucking the Republic is in the show notes, the description for this show. And I'm happy to take calls and get your take on this. You have to drill it, extract it from the ground, and that costs money. So those companies get paid. Now, very important before we move on, this price right now at this moment is what you see quoted on the exchanges. So if it's $110 a barrel, that's how much it costs right at that moment that we pull it from the ground. Now we begin to add to it along the way. So... Then you have to transport it from the rig to the refinery, where it's turned into something else, something called the distillate. Refineries will convert crude oil, which is essentially useless in its most basic form, into light, middle, or heavy distillates for use in various processes. We cover this in our peak oil episode, but you're talking about everything from jet fuel and automobile fuel to kerosene, home heating oil, and motor oil. These refineries also have to get paid. 
From there, the distillates have to move to storage facilities. So the transportation companies and the storage companies will need to get paid as well. Then it moves from the storage facility to a smaller distribution center or directly through a network of trucks and tankers that take it to gas stations, as our prime example, to be poured into your gas tank. The gas stations... I'm going to move us along to the point of this that he's getting to. Come on, play for me. In uneven fashion. This translates into production issues at refineries because the demand for middle distillates has been even higher than normal. Middle distillates include like jet fuel, diesel, kerosene, and home heating oil fuel. Because of the resurgence of travel and the need to move more goods at sea and on land, the demand for these distillates has been higher. So refineries are running at full capacity, trying to manage the increases in crude supply to not only meet the demands of the consumer for gasoline, but other areas of the economy as well that are at the early stages of recovery post-pandemic. There's also a negative feedback loop to consider as well because transportation is a key element of the final pricing and diesel fuel is so expensive, transportation companies are adding a premium to their services as well because it's so expensive for them to fuel up just to deliver the very fuel that they're using. With this understanding of how crude oil is priced on the market and all the companies that have to get paid along the way, let's review the reasons that everyone tells us for high gasoline prices and dismantle them one by one before I send you off into the world to argue with your friends. Biden gave too much money to consumers, so we're spending like assholes. Okay, so this is basically a supply and demand argument. Essentially, we as consumers have so much money in our pockets that we're outpacing the world's ability to meet our insatiable needs. In Substack at unftr.substack.com, I've included two helpful charts to destroy this myth as visual aid. Bottom line, demand for crude in 2022 is only now approaching where it was in 2019, prior to the pandemic. In terms of supply, I've included another chart that demonstrates that we're matching supply barrel for barrel to current demand. There's exactly zero gap between them. So if supply is meeting demand, and demand is even slightly less than what it was at the same time in 2019, what was the price of a barrel of crude in June of 2019? Surprise, surprise, it was $65 per barrel. Everyone is traveling again and living their lives, so it's our fault. Okay, I'd like to pause after the first one. So, so one of the one of the arguments that people make for why there's uh, increase in prices at the pump is is that. Sorry, I just lost my I just lost my page. Um. Traveling, right? That that Biden gave too much money to to consumers and were spending it like assholes. Well, that turns out to really not be the case. And uh, as Max was explaining, I don't know about you, but I sure don't. I live in California, and five dollar gasoline was about six months ago. So. Um, it is a real challenge, and there's complicated supply and demand issues. But one of the things I really like about this episode and why I wanted to highlight it here on call-in and perhaps have some discussion is that it gives some good, cogent, fact-based arguments that you can send back to people who are giving these crazy arguments about that actually aren't the case, about why gas prices are so high. So the second argument is everyone is traveling again and living their lives like, so it's our fault. All right, so travel has yet to reach the levels that it did in 2019. And it's beginning to cool due to high prices, as a matter of fact. So it was a relatively mild winter and road trips look like they too will fall short this summer due to, of course, high fuel prices another negative feedback loop, so I call bullshit. 
Biden's war of words with the fossil fuel industry magically made prices go up. Candidate Biden might have said he would push to transform our energy policy to pursue a renewable future. But most of those dreams died when the Senate killed Build Back Better. And even BBB fell short of the dream. So this, again, is just utter bullshit. Fossil fuel companies have tons of open leases as it is. And the Biden administration reversed its decision to halt new leases on federal lands. There is simply no truth to this allegation. So again, another another myth debunked about why prices are so high at the tank. Now, the next couple are a little more complicated, and the next one is about Ukraine. The war in Ukraine. Putin's fault. To the extent that fear is baked into the prices, I can accept this. But the reality on the ground, however, is that Russia not only hasn't stopped pumping crude, it's killing it right now. Have we made it harder to pay for it? A little. But they've worked around it. And for the time being, they still have customers taking their supply of oil and natural gas. Now, this is going to change in the future due to new EU regulations and sanctions. But they haven't even begun to implement these changes. So right now, it's pretty much status quo. Again, there's enough supply globally to handle demand anyway. And we have plenty of time to ramp up production in the future if need be. The bottom line is that it has nothing to do with the current calculus, which is pretty much backed up by every U.S. and global energy agency that believe, quote, uncertainty is behind the rise in prices rather than actual economic factors. And I'd just like to pause here again to say that, um, welcome everybody here. I'm Amanda Rice. I am highlighting an episode of Unfucking the Republic about the price of gasoline. And we're listening to a section about debunking the myths about why the gas prices are so high. And I just want to pause here and say that fossil fuel is everywhere in our society. It's ubiquitous and extracting it from our culture is going to be extremely difficult. And so it's not that I don't think that gas prices being high and hopefully reducing the amount of fossil fuels that are demanded. That's a good thing because climate change. But this is about, this particular show is about the complications about how the price of gasoline is no longer seems to be tethered to the actual price to get it from the ground to the pump with all of those middlemen that, that he described a couple of minutes ago. I am, I do welcome calls. I hope the sound is okay. And I hope that you can call in. If, if you would like to call in, you should be able to hit the, the caller icon at the bottom of the screen on the right hand side by the thumbs up. I think, I think most of you are regulars here and so you know the drill. Um, and, Let's get back to this show. The uneven global recovery from the pandemic has impacted refineries and capacity. So it's China's fault? Okay, so this is the one that is partially true. Now, again, go back to the crack pricing that we talked about before. Refineries are running at capacity to fill in the gaps for middle distillates. It's worth noting, though, that there's profiteering here as well. For example, the adjusted quarterly earnings for Marathon Petroleum, one of the largest refinery operations in the world, are up two and a half times this quarter over last year to $2.6 billion. They've also bragged about stock buybacks, as most of the energy companies have done, which is a prime indicator that these companies are all flush with cash. If it was a true dollar-for-dollar increase that was being passed along, their revenues would be up but profits would remain relatively stable. In other words, they're charging a premium for cracking because they know that no one is looking. And with respect to China, China is still relatively dormant due to its renewed COVID lockdown policies. So all of these price increases that we see are without China's real participation. I shudder to think what it will look like when China comes fully back online. So there's another one that could be a little bit disturbing. Uh, cause that's the one that's partially true. Anything that's partially true 
makes it easier for people to believe because they know part of it. Hey, that sounds kind of right. And there's one more myth that he's going to give you some. Biden's handcuffed U.S. oil and natural gas production by killing projects like the Keystone Pipeline. Biden's fault. We have no problem moving oil and gas around this country. We're the largest producer of both in the world. Keystone Pipeline is a red herring thrown out by conservative media to get you to look away from the real problem. So... Those are all really interesting complications. And the thing that makes this episode, I think, so surprising to me is their, um, the speculative trading and commodity market is on oil is, is part of what's causing most of the problem. And if you go back to an episode that that they did on peak oil, which was a very long and complicated one. It actually explains how the oil companies who are doing the drilling are actually controlling the price that it's being sold for on the market by saying what the price is going to be next year. So the speculative pricing and uncertainty makes all of the prognosticators suggests that it's going to be high when really there's no real reason for it to be high except for greed. I welcome anybody to give a call in. Oh, Shelly, thank you so much. Welcome. Please unmute yourself. Hey, Amanda, how are you? I'm so glad to have you here. Well, I've, I'm hesitant. I was hesitant to call in because I missed the first little bit. Um, I think you said there were five points. Can you like quickly give me the first like two? Yeah, it, it, the so the the podcast is is part of the podcast is giving some some um, coherent arguments to give back when people are saying that it's Biden's causing the gas prices to go out through the roof or Putin's causing it because of Ukraine. And, and so I was just playing those talking points back for responding to those kinds of um, arguments, because really what it is, is it's controlled. The real culprit is wall street. Oh yeah. I, I would have to agree, but I would also have to say that, probably is Biden's price hike just because I think that the sanctions are the biggest problem. Did, did he, did he address that? Yeah, he did actually. And, and that's, that was one of the, let's see if I can get, let's see if I can get yeah, to I'm that sorry, point. I'm sorry right I came there. In no, it's, Hey, I don't mind. Let's see if I can get there. I think I got it. Is baked into the prices. I can accept this, but the reality let's on the see. ground, however, is that Russia not only hasn't stopped pumping crude, it's killing it right now. Have we made it harder to pay for it? A little, but they've worked around it. And for the time being, they still have customers taking their supply of oil and natural gas. Now, this is going to change in the future due to new EU regulations and sanctions, but they haven't even begun to implement these changes. So right now, it's pretty much status quo. Again, there's enough supply globally to handle demand anyway, and we have plenty of time to ramp up production in the future if need be. The bottom line is that it has nothing to do with the current calculus, which is pretty much backed up by every U.S. and global energy agency that believe, quote, uncertainty is behind the rise in prices rather than actual economic factors. So does that, is that address the, uh, yeah, that point? Yeah, I think it does. Um, I think I have to disagree. I, I'd like to hear why, because this is one of the things. I I love this podcast. It is extremely well-sourced and well-produced, and there is a lot of supporting documentation, which tells me the facts on which it's based are good. But yeah, no, that I doesn't just, mean that the opinions don't come in. And then, so I like, um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to having discussions that, that maybe have worldviews that don't agree with this, because I'd like to hear what it is. 
So please. It's not necessarily, it's not necessarily that I don't agree with it. And I think that like the overall points are pretty salient. Um, I think whenever you talk about being able to ramp up production, it misses the fact that, um, like, for example, one of the reasons why we ran to Venezuela, you know, for oil is because different types of oil have different characteristics, different. And, and I don't and I'm not an expert on this at all. But whenever you have refineries, they are tuned to refine a particular type of oil. And like Venezuelan oil roughly kind of matches some of Russia's oil. And that's one of the reasons why we, we brand a Venezuela because it's not all oil isn't the same. And then I would have to say with that being a difference, then you would have to say, well, what are the shipping conditions like, which is a set, which is a separate issue. Like the for sure. And the shipping issues. And so I think that those are actually some, some of the bigger hangups as far as production goes. And again, this is, this is one of the things that this podcast does pretty well is to address those, um, those, um, they try not to skip over anything, but it is a very complicated market. And, and part of one of the, um, so, so if you get down to, um, if you get down to the, the, Conclusion where they talk about um, who the real who the real culprit is, and just give me one minute to pull this up here. Yeah, I'm curious. Is the person arguing inflation expectations is the reason for increased gasoline prices? Uh, that is that is that is pretty much the beginning of the yes. The the argument is that the speculation markets is part of what's causing the um is part part of what's causing the increases speculation markets always cause a particular amount of increase but it's not normally the base like in housing it's a thing yeah um so i'm just gonna if you want to um respond i'm just gonna get us to the to the end here so we can hear the yeah, yeah, sure. conclusion. And what's the name of this podcast while you're looking for that? It's called Unfucking the Republic. You can find <laughs> it by looking up UNFTR, Unfucking the Republic. I like it. It's 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 really uh from show number 1 really well produced. I found it because I listened to a podcast called The Best of the Left which is kind of like an audio reader's digest of lefty podcasts. And um, so, so that's, All right, uh, well, let's see. I'll, I think I'll, I'll let you find the, find the end so we can talk about it. But meanwhile, this is, this is. The okay. I think we got it here. But hold on, before you say that, this is the same. Amanda yeah, go for it. Love. Go for it. You're, you had like the, I don't know. I mean, cause always the picture is so small. You had the cute haircut. Oh yeah, and and kind of the yellowish background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With my roses, yeah. Yes. Okay. I've I've been I Amanda. I just got to tell you, I've been so disappointed because there have been plenty of times that it's like I've been on whatever call-in show and you were like right behind me, and then for whatever reason, it's like you couldn't call in, and I was just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank well, thank you for that. But I and I appreciate I appreciate your views as as well. All right, let's hear this. So here's the here's the here's the sum up. Now this is this is going to be a couple of minutes, but I do welcome people to give a call in, and um, and we can um, go from here. So here we go. All together now, the dollar is strong and crude oil prices are up. This is illogical, and it goes against all economic fundamentals. Supply is meeting and matching global demand. Global demand is slightly less than what it was in 2019 at the same moment when oil was $65 per barrel. Oil companies from drillers, transporters, and refineries are recording record profits. In fact, in an interview with CNBC at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, 
Fatih Birol, the executive director of the International Energy Agency, said, quote, in the last five years, on average, the oil and gas industry made revenues of about $1.5 trillion. And this year, from $1.5, it will go to $4 trillion U.S. dollars, more than a two times increase in the oil and gas companies' revenues. End quote. The war in Ukraine has not slowed down the supply of oil coming from Russia. Countries across the globe, including the United States, have released crude from their strategic oil reserves to backstop any potential gaps in supply. Okay, so it's not supply and demand. China is still closed, so it's not China. It's not Russia because they're still pumping oil and making money. It's not the dollar because the dollar is strong, so oil should be cheap. It's not Biden's war on fossil fuel because these companies are recording record profits. And it's not us because all the money they gave us during the pandemic is fucking gone. So I guess it's the oil companies then, right? Yes and no. I promised I would tell you who's to blame, so here we go. The oil companies are the beneficiaries for sure. And to the extent that they manage and run trading desks... They are part of the problem. So the real culprit behind high gasoline prices is Wall Street. And here's why. The bond market is in shambles. The stock market is as well. Right now, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America and others are chasing returns. And they've turned to the market of last resort and they're making a killing. They don't even have to increase the trading volume in the sector because They're the ones that name the price in the forecast. By forecasting the price, they essentially set the price. They don't have to lift a finger to move the market. Just appear on television and say the magic words. Who are they? Well, they are, for example, Bank of America. Well, we think, uh, depending on how the sanctions go in Europe, we could see uh, the European sanctions on Russian energy. We could see maybe $150 a barrel, maybe a little higher. Goldman Sachs. So we think Brent prices have to go higher, uh, another $20. Royal Bank of Canada. I mean, my expectation is that we're going to see crude prices continue to rise. I mean, Or J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan predicts the nationwide average for gas could reach $6.20 a gallon by August. Now remember from our peak oil episode that these are the big named players, but there are others who trade on what's called the OTC, the over-the-counter markets. Trading desks owned by the actual energy companies themselves that are also placing bets on the price of commodities. That's right. So Chevron, Exxon, BP, they all have trading desks that trade on the very commodity that they own and control. And so they too participate in setting the actual price. It's a clusterfuck. They're pushing up prices because they can't find returns anywhere else on fuckers. And they're doing it because they can. They're getting away with it because they know that we don't know. And Congress is either in on it or they're too stupid to understand that they're getting snowed. You want to know how I know that? Sure. I am all ears. Okay. Here's just one small example, just one, of how everyone in Congress is acting in a different fucking movie. Literally no one on the same page or even looking at the same script. The New York Times reported that the Biden administration is thinking of announcing a tax holiday on gas, basically eliminating federal gas taxes to bring down prices at the pump, which some believe would reduce prices by a whopping five cents a gallon. But hey, it's something, right? Now listen to what the New York Times reported in terms of opposition to see how they don't get it right. Congress doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about. And none of us know how to translate this. Quote, the White House will face an uphill battle to get Congress to approve the holiday, however, while the administration and some congressional Democrats have for months discussed such a suspension, Republicans widely oppose it and have accused the administration of undermining the energy industry. Even members of Mr. Biden's own party, including Speaker Nancy Pelosi, have expressed concern that companies would absorb much of the savings leaving little for consumers. Senator Joe Manchin III, Democrat of West fucking Virginia, fucking was my insertion, said this year that the plan doesn't make sense. End quote. So, okay, 
This is the federal tax on gasoline that goes from the consumer to the government and is theoretically used to fund federal highway programs. This is a budgeting farce, by the way, because it's not like there's a separate bank account for highways. It all gets washed into the federal budget. Anyway, Republicans say this undermines the energy industry, except that the industry literally has nothing to do with it. They never touch that fucking money. But how about that Nancy Pelosi? Concerned that companies would absorb this savings? What the fuck is that? How does that... How is she doing that math? <laughs> Joe Manchin saying it doesn't make any sense. This limited and feckless oh gimmick God. literally has nothing to do with anything. So I can't even understand why the fuck any of them would have a problem with this. But this is the level of incompetence that we're dealing with in Congress and why something as stupid as a gas tax holiday can't even get passed. Anyway, the answer is Wall Street on fuckers. They're taking your money because they can't take it from the stock market or the bond market. Are the oil and gas companies profiting from it all? Of course, because that baseline price, the price of a barrel of crude coming out of the ground, ultimately goes into their pockets as well. But the reason that baseline price is so high to begin with isn't actually their fault. That's a head fake. It's Wall Street. It's always Wall Street. Congress isn't stupid. Its members are just in Wall Street's pocket. Oil should never have been allowed to be traded on an exchange. So when it comes to gas prices, remember, it's not your fault. Here ended the lesson. Okay, so that's the majority of the main content for that episode of Unfucking the Republic podcast. Shelly, did you want to well, say something? And then I'll have Charlie come up. Yeah, I always want to say something, Amanda. Um, <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> well, I'm just kind of thinking about, like, I do agree that there, like, I do agree that there is a lot of Wall Street speculation, but I don't think that it can possibly be the only thing. Like, if I'm thinking about, like, the sanctions and, and all that all that stuff that we proposed on Russia, which, remember, for years, the United States and, and basically the Western countries have but, just... Mm-hmm. Well, so, but it, it's not, it's about, it, so the Russia thing would be supply and demand, right? Um, Isn't that the argument? That, that because there's sanctions on Russia, there isn't enough supply? No, I would say that what's happening is that the countries that have decided to put sanctions on Russia, which are mostly the Western European countries, and because we kind of live in like a cocoon or a bubble, um, being in the United States and being kind of linked to the Western uh, European state. Yeah. So, like, if you think about, like, what India is doing, they're buying the oil, they're refining it, and then they're selling it. Well, there's a markup there. Right. Yeah. So For sure. I think that- but, but, that's, but that's the thing, is that the price per barrel, the, the thing that's, that, that the podcast is explaining, and, and the entire script and all of the supporting information is all on the Unfucking the Republic website. Their Substack is completely free, so you can access all the information at any time. So if anybody is interested in getting further details on these things, it's, it's there for you. But, but the, the, one of the things that he's saying is that, is that the, the price of oil being, being part of the speculative market is part of what detached it from the reality the economic realities of actually producing oh, well, I, and oh, refining totally the oil. Agree with that. Right. I, so I think I that's totally the point that. that he's making. But I think, so. I think more the point that I'm making is that, um, yes, there is a lot of like wall street speculation and like price gouging, but a lot of it is sort of like the unintended part of it. It's, you know, because there's a, price spike because there's the price gouging now people are trying to figure out how to get it india is getting discounted oil yeah it's so there is a slight supply and demand thing but it's still a supply and demand of financialized and speculated upon oil and so that's like really boosting it up so it's 
It's kind well, of I would, I, I would, I would urge you to go and look at the charts on the website because, uh, because I think that the that the data that he provides shows that that's that the supply and demand hasn't they they're matching each other, gallon for gallon, pretty much. Yeah. No. I like I said, I came in in the middle yeah. of it, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm responding. I'm, I'm not saying you're, I'm saying this is the information that I have, you know? Yeah, no, I dig Let's it. See I would definitely. I, I, I think there's much to be said about we should be getting off fossil fuels anyway. So debating yes. how the prices yeah. are so ridiculous is, is kind of superfluous, but it's kind of like the, the article Ryan Grimm wrote about how horrifying it is to be in a non-profit these days or something right is it it's a it's a side it's a side it's very detailed complicated sideshow to the main things that are going on right yeah but I agree. there's so much going on that that to try and understand little pieces of it i think that this this is one of my um the best resources that i've found for understanding how we are where we are yeah i know it it seems very interesting to me i definitely feel like i have like a little bit of a back catalog that i want to investigate which is kind of the reason why i'm like oh i don't really know what i'm saying right now but um i'll just i'll just shut the hell up and let's talk to charlie (laughs) okay (laughs) thank you shelly i appreciate you being here charlie hello can you hear me okay i can can you hear me okay Yes. Thanks for taking good. my call. Welcome. Sure. How are you doing tonight? Uh, yeah, I, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm pretty good. What you, What are you thinking? Oh, I'm just uh, interested in that podcast. I'll probably have to check it out. I haven't listened to it yet, but um, I just wanted to discuss a couple things from the clips that you played. Sure. Um, yeah, so I was a, I've been a big peak oiler from back in the day. I used to read the oil drum, and I don't know if you've heard of James Howard Kunstler or anybody yeah, like yeah. that. From a, yeah, from he's written The Long Emergency and a couple other books talking about peak oil and stuff. And I, as I got older, I've started to kind of be a little more skeptical on the theory based on a few different things. But um, I guess that is an aside. The last caller, um, I think she mentioned she kind of did a, did agree with the idea that it was part, partly Biden's fault for these gas prices. Mm-hmm. And I think it's easy um, for people, especially on the left, to kind of dismiss that as, as being a, a probability. But I think that one of the things I heard, that I don't know who that guy's co-host is, that girl, but she, she mentioned, well, gas companies are making record profits, so therefore... They, it can't be um, basically uh, Biden meddling in the in the oil and gas leases and preventing stuff like that. But I think she's missing something big, which is obviously if the the rhetoric coming from the Democrats before these gas prices went up was essentially uh, telling the oil industry that they you know they they're in an existential crisis and they're going to be basically extinct in the next 10, 15 years. Right. Which right. I think we can all agree that that's that like in theory is a good thing. I mean, I'm, you know, that'd be great if we could all get off oil, but we all know how important it is. So I think that the industry in general is kind of looking at the Biden administration as a threat. And so if you're not, if you're not allowed to invest and you're not investing in, in any production, you're saving a lot of money. And I don't think that, they're kind of factoring that in because uh, naturally whatever you're selling, the commodity is going to go way up in value. So um, well, yeah, that's all I to, about that. Yeah. I urge you to check out, they did a deep dive on, on peak oil and they dropped it on Friday. It, it was a rerun on Friday. They did it. They did the deep dive a couple months ago, but the, but they did a really good, um, deep dive and where they talked about a lot of those things you just brought up. And if, if you've been watching this for a while, I'd be interested to, to, to hear what you have to say after listening to that. Cause again, I, I'm, I'm just listening by myself. So sometimes it's easy to miss certain things that might, that would otherwise be obvious if I had some pushback from somewhere, you know what I'm saying? 
Yeah, and I'm definitely sympathetic to his argument about Wall Street meddling in the markets. I'm sure they're doing that, and I'm sure that's a cause. But I think it's multiple factors. It's definitely supply and demand, and it's definitely other reasons. Because we haven't really seen demand destruction yet in in, uh, in in driving. I think we're about to see it probably this weekend. But I don't think people really haven't seen it quite yet. Because yeah, he did mention that all the all the stimulus money is gone. Um, but you know, people right. still are spending money on gas. And you know, another thing people don't realize is even ten years ago, cars were so inefficient that. You know, the average gas mileage, I think it's 21 miles a gallon, which is pretty pathetic if you think about it. But that's factoring in, you know, huge gas guzzling SUVs. So, I mean, a lot of people are getting 35, 40 miles a gallon in their Camrys when, you know, back in the even like early 2000s, you'd be lucky to be getting 20. So I think that's something else, you know, $5 a gallon gas doesn't hurt as bad nowadays as it used to. Well, but but also people are also having to drive a lot more for their jobs and drive a lot further because of something else that's been commoditized, which is housing, right? That's what what um, uh, the recent bad faith was about. You know, the commodi- the commodi- commoditization. I can't talk. Commoditization of housing. Um, Charlie, did you have another point? Because I'd like to hear what else you have to say. Oh, um, no, that was pretty much it. I mean, I, I, it's, I think it's just a really complicated problem. I think he's being a little bit reductionist with his argument. Oh, for sure. To, uh, for to, sure. Because there's yeah. people whose whole careers are, are diving into the details of all of this. And it is complicated. I think the mission that I have and the mission the show has is trying to give people some broader context because just like almost everything, if we don't know our history, I think this was something I was just on debrief with um, Bree's show, which is why I started my show late. Um, it was that same, it was that same thing, right? Yeah. So, so I, I think there's, I think there are a lot of like-minded people, and and if we don't if we don't know our history or what has been done during history, like like on, um, I keep referring to bad faith, but I have it on the brain because I've been li- listening to that, and then I was just on her, um, but but they talked about you know expropriating the the housing of of people who were not for the American revolution, who were patriots to the British. Right. And that's, that's part of the history or the history of that FDR put in price fixing, you know, not knowing our histories is, is part of why we don't know possibly what's even been done and doesn't work. Right. So, I mean, it's good to have the context. And I think that's, um, what I really like about the show. I'm going to be continuing to, to, um, have these call-ins about, um, a variety of topics and I'm definitely open to suggestion. Um, I haven't planned the next one yet. Um, but I, I, there are a lot of good topics, um, covered on, in Unfucking the Republic. But I also would like to share some of the other resources that I've found that have very good, I'd like good discussion points. So um, please drop me a note if you'd like. I'm going to try and get, I'm going to try and have this be a regular time on Thursday. But um, Bree's show usually runs long, so we may do, I may do it at three instead of um, six. I welcome you all to join me next week. Does anybody else, would anybody else like to call in? I'd like to thank everybody for showing up. And this was the, my inaugural, uh, show. And, oh, Shelly, come on. Come on, my friend. Hey, I, well, I just want to say thank you and congratulations on starting your show. And I'm looking forward to it. Cool. Well, I welcome, I welcome suggestions for, for topics. And again, I, I can't recommend this podcast enough. It has been so interesting and I've learned so many good things about, about the, 
new ways of seeing the way that this country is where it is. And, and yeah, no, I, I, this podcast does seem really, really interesting to me, but I was hoping, um, cause I, ha- I listen to a ton of stuff. Um, and I would like to give you suggestions, but I would like to give you suggestions that are more kind of tailored to maybe things that you would like to cover. You, well, well, yeah. So, 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 um, can you message me in the in the app and we can have a little discussion cuz i've got i'm i'm going to try and keep this to close to an hour cuz i don't want to disrespect people in the caller list but i also think it gets unwieldy at a couple of hours long that yeah. people might not listen to later i mean i could listen to brianna talk all day long right I could do it, but, <laughs> you know but but most but most shows it's good to have a, a, a closing, I think. I, and I'd be interested to hear because I know Chris and July and the folks that are here are here on call in. And, and I, I definitely am in for up for anybody giving tips on things that, that you think work or don't work on the app because. Okay. Well, I'll try to think of some of the, maybe some of the best things that I could send you. Are you more interested in economic stuff? So, so my Paul, I am a, I am a government groupie policy wonk, but my, my specific areas of interest in are in the commons, specifically housing, water resources, you know, the commons resources. And um, I will probe my brain and see if I can think of like some of the best things you can play for clips. And the other things that I really, uh, the other thing that I really think is we need to be working towards solutions. I, I feel very, very much like I did when I was in my last semester of grad school for getting my teaching, my master's in teaching. I was so ready to get in the classroom, like, stop with the theory already. Stop with the conversations. I'm done with the lectures. I'm done with this. Let me at the kids. I just want to teach. I'm ready. I'm ready. Like, I'm just ready for the revolution. I'm ready to do things to disrupt things. I'm ready. Let's stop talking about it and find solutions and do things. Because, you know, I'm tired of, uh, I think I heard somebody say, um, there some. I'm not going to get the quote exactly right but it's like the the highest policy goal of liberals is to stand witness they're not going to actually provide a solution but they will stand with you in your suffering they're not going to provide an answer to your suffering i want to talk i want to i want to ha- be a place for solutions like a lot of people have expressed on a lot of different shows on this app so well I I listened to way too many podcasts during the first year of the pandemic, right after the first year of the pandemic, I moved. And I think for the first four months, the first sentence out of my mouth in every conversation was, I was listening to this podcast and I heard this thing, which may not be an unfamiliar phrase to, to other folks on this app, but there are a lot of fascinating people with fascinating ideas out there and there's just not enough time to listen to it all. So curating some of that to provide some additional richness to the, to the conversation and historical context is. Oh, lovely of you. Welcome. I hope you guys all have a great night and we will be here again next week.